Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. God queered the binary between life and death is something I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of my life. Okay, whoo! So I'm Tyler. Uh, welcome uh, to New City Church. I'm a, I'm a pastor here. And, um, and I'm just so grateful. Ah, okay, just to re- loop back one more time. I, I just think this is exactly why we have a Black History Month, right? Like, we need to honor and, um, and be grateful for all the people who have gone before us who have created an imagination for the type of liberation that we're pursuing, right? Like, um, and I love that you picked uh, someone who is currently alive uh, because we have ancestors in our midst, right? And it, it inspires us um, as, as a community to be ancestors for the people that we're with as well. You know, I hope that one day there's going to be someone doing a testimony about your tweets. <laughs> you know, um, that's the kind of people, Miata's is like, not mine. And <laughs> Um, and, and that's kind of, I mean, like, that's the, where the bar is. Like, that's how I want to show up to the world in, in a way that's, like, inspiring people to liberation and to, to, to compost the empire Yay. and to grow the new city. And that's what, all that we're here to do. That's 100% of what we're here to do. All of the things that we do is in service to that goal. Um, so, uh, so today, uh, there's two things that I want to, I want to talk through. <laughs> First is kind of, um, this, the, I don't know if, I didn't hear as much gasping as I anticipated. So we, I feel like we need to like loop back on a little bit of the Carolina Reaperness of this, uh, scripture. First of all, so Jesus is going through the Sabbath and the Pharisees, are like the people who are in charge of religious observance. Like they're the people who like know the most about how to observe Sabbath, how to, how to do the thing. And they're looking at Jesus and they're seeing him do something that you're not supposed to do on Sabbath. You're not supposed to pluck or harvest on Sabbath. And so they, they look at him and they're like, um, hey, why, why are you bringing the Sabbath law? And Jesus says, haven't you ever read what David said? Which is as biblical of an equivalent as Per my previous email, <laughs> have you have you heard of? Let me just let me just let me just. Uh, there's David, and it's and it seems like uh, those folks could uh, pluck on the Sabbath. Huh? Wow. You should give it a, you should give it a shot. That's it's a. Uh, you might learn something. So, like, that's the tone of Jesus being like, listen, you want to push back on Sabbath law? Like, I created the universe. Like, I know, I know how this is supposed to go, folks. And I just, yeah, and I, and I really love just um, the, the Mark kind of author commentary of, of this, um, uh, the Sabbath was, oh, and yeah, this was a great line that stuck out to me as well. The Sabbath was created for humans. Humans weren't created for the Sabbath. This is going to lead up to the second point. Um, Sabbath was created for humans. Humans weren't created for Sabbath. 
This is why the human one is Lord even over the Sabbath. The human one refers to Jesus. And, and so what the text is saying is that um, there is no religious ceremony or observance that is higher than, than the liberating love that Jesus is bringing to the world. And this is a, this is a spicy thing to say because Sabbath is, is as up there as anything in, in the Jewish tradition that's really important. And Jesus said, like, yeah, Sabbath is great. Observe Sabbath. But if it results in people not being fed, then break the Sabbath. Uh, because, because Jesus wants people to be fed. So, um, yep, so that's part one. <clears throat> there's, some, there's some hot sauce there. And the part two is, um, I, uh, something I didn't say in my intro to Siobhan is Siobhan is also my writing coach. Um, because I am, um, I'm writing a book that's looking to platform the voices of New City and the experiences of New City to explain Christianity. Uh, because uh, people from this community approached me and they're like, okay, I'm, I've been to New City. I'm starting to like believe that maybe I'm not, 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 not a Christian. Like I'm like thinking about maybe who should I be reading or who should I be listening to? Oh, and like, I don't want to read another book about Christianity by a white guy. And I'm like, huh. Um, I don't have a, I have seminary books by amazing professors of color who have, who have really like blown my mind. And, and I have like testimony autobiographies of, of people of color and queer people. Um, and I have a lot of like really helpful books that were written by white folks, but I know we're trying to decolonize our, our bookshelves. So, um, so I don't really have a good response to that. And, and uh, in, the, in the time uh, we were getting ready for our Staying Awake sermon series, and FTE approached us about Forum for Theological Exploration, approached us about publishing a book, and I thought, um, uh, it, was it Toni Morrison who was like, you have to write yourself into existence? Or someone. Someone said you have to write yourself into existence. And I kind of was like, our community is writing ourselves into existence. So, um, so that's, uh, yeah, so I, I, given that today is the last day of um, our, um, our, the last week of our spiritual practices class, because we've been doing a month-long journey through a workbook of spiritual practices, and given that this is the last Sunday of our spiritual practices month, and given that Sabbath is one of the most important spiritual practices that Christians and, and uh, humans can observe, I wanted to just uh, share a little bit of the writing uh, about from the chapter on Sabbath. Is that? Yeah. Are we feeling some? Uh, if you um, don't like the chapter, you can bring it up with my coach. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to uh, share this is because we're preparing for um, publication, and and I really like want this to feel like this is an emergence of community voice and community experience. Um, and so, like I tried to 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 capture, describe some of the um, themes that I heard from the community, but I, I really want this to be an ongoing conversation because so I believe that's the future of Christian books is, is texts that are created in community. Um, okay. 
So, uh, so this is this is the I think it's like the fourth chapter uh, on Sabbath, um, fourth or like third. We've changed the location of the chapters a lot. <laughs> um, okay, it starts with a quote from the community. I need a sermon series on hookup culture like yesterday. <laughs> was the quote. Um, <laughs> the note was folded and dropped into the basket where people donate money. You could almost smell the hormones. Uh, the handwriting was desperate, like someone trapped in a nightclub bathroom with no toilet paper. It was a theme that came up frequently in my community, very frequently, in fact. Is it okay to want sex? Like, a lot. Like, if, if I want to, and furthermore, if I wait until I'm married to have sex, what if I don't like how my partner has sex? Also, what do I do about my friends who waited until marriage and then got divorced? Like, what does that mean for them? These questions come as messages in a bottle sent from the desolate island of purity culture. <laughs> purity culture, which really picked up steam in the 90s, gave teenagers some tough pills to swallow. No sex before marriage, and when you do have sex, it has to be heterosexual. And no masturbation, and if women dress in a way that shows their body, she is guilty for whatever sexual impulse she sparks in men. Uh, purity culture compares people, especially women, who have had sex before marriage to a flower with its petals ripped out or chewed up bubblegum. Purity culture says that sex is a dog barking in a cage and you just have to ignore it until it stops. Now, I didn't grow up with purity culture, so it was with a certain fascination that I heard about the lengths that young evangelicals went to avoid sex. In a nearby college, one circle of male students wear master bands. Master bands are bracelets that you wear all the time, and if you masturbate, you put a hot pink bead on it. And, and so the idea is that the shame of having the bead presumably would discourage men from masturbating. So to recap, that is binding sex and shame and the loathing of girly colors all in one accessory. Um, cool. So, um, and however good the intentions, the result of purity culture create manifold unintended consequences. As Linda K. Klein has researched, women who are raised in purity culture often grow up to have PTSD-like symptoms when they are married. Men have a harder time feeling intimacy later on in life. Queer people, as you might suspect, typically spend the rest of their lives sorting what it meant to grow up in a world where they weren't allowed to exist. Josh Harris, an author who shaped purity culture through his widely read book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, has subsequently realized the harm that purity culture has wrought and discontinued its publication. And while purity culture intended to create a faith-based ethic of relationship, to encourage a high sexual ethic, and as many argue, to value bodies and sex, the fruit of these efforts has not resulted in better relationships. Indeed, as many of the people in my congregation can tell you, it has resulted in fearfulness around sex, distrust of their bodies and others, and the occasional sexual rager with a, I'm going to hell anyways, let's just go big attitude. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so these stories come up in community and sometimes in our deconstructing purity culture group and sometimes in worship. And when it's shared in the broader community, there's always some people in the crowd who shake their head with a tisk, tisk, tisk. 
And these tis, tis, tiskers are typically, but not always, white. And they usually come with degrees from liberal art colleges that have espresso machines in the dining hall. And they lean over to their friend wearing ironic glasses and they say, can you believe that? I would never disrespect myself like that. And they usually say this with some kind of enlightened perspective of someone who is involved in social justice and, and knows how to spit words like problematizing androcentric discourse without blinking. And, and their social media feeds are filled with the next article about the next everyday thing to get outraged about. And, and they perform this outrage in social media and social situations. Behind the ironic glasses, though, there's a lot of anxiety. These folks are the ones who know exactly how messed up the world is. And they hear about it all the time, read about it all the time, talk about it all the time. All of their food is, is sourced problematically, and all of their favorite child movies are problematic now. All of their actions are subject to scrutiny and might even, yep, be problematic. Thus arises call-out culture, uh, where uh, call-out culture is rampant, where people post on social media about how so-and-so mistreated them and they need to be cut out from the community. And you know what? They're not wrong. There's a lot of problematic stuff happening in the world, like all of the time. Food is sourced from banana plantations that use slave labor, and our childhood movies do reinforce rape culture. And yes, sometimes people who do abusive things in the shadow will only be accountable for their actions once their actions are made public. But this way of being creates its own certain type of desolate island, except this time in the social justice community. People confide in me about how they hyper-control their behaviors for fear of public shame and being a terrible person. The microscope, the microscope zooms in more and more until perfectionism turns into secrecy. People with privilege start believing that the mark of solidarity is not meaningful accompaniment, i.e. meaningful accompaniment such as showing up, putting your money where your mouth is, or leveraging privilege, but simply feeling bad all the time. That meaningful accompaniment is just feeling bad all the time. Life feels like a brittle apology. This is one of the reasons that young people in my neighborhood passionately throw themselves into social justice for three years, burn out, and then end up getting a job with the corporations that they used to advocate against. Beyond the exhausting theater of looking like an ally, there is further the toxicity of marginalized people over-functioning to, to work out the trauma within ourselves. I threw myself into the work, one black woman told me. She did activism around police brutality, which is certainly not for the faint of heart. And she said, every time I wanted to rest, I would berate myself saying, oh, so you must not believe in the value of black lives if you're not showing up for the next thing. Whether it be demonstration or a meeting or a conversation with an elected official. But eventually I realized that there is always another next thing and I'm feeling broken today. All of this comes from a very understandable place, but the deeper I get into both the church and the activist world, the more I realize that some social justice circles look a whole lot like purity culture. Like Francis Lee writing in an amazingly insightful article titled Excommunicate Me from the Church of Social Justice says, ultimately the quest for po political purity is a treacherous distraction for well-intentioned activists. In other words, there is an underlying preoccupation for purity that stops us from actually putting our hand to the plow and doing the work of liberation. 
And whether you're a person with lots of privilege who feels simultaneously culpable and paralyzed, or a person who is marginalized and getting run ragged from the world, um, from a world that wants you spent, or someone who has worked so hard on this that you forgot to notice that you've been walking on a broken foot, somewhere deep inside, you know that there must be a better way. You know, I've definitely been there as an educated, cisgender male, able-bodied person. Sometimes I feel like I just don't know how to be in a space without perpetuating the problems. I feel a spike of shame whenever I use outdated language or make mistakes that harm oppressed people. And that's without being called out on social media, right? And the fragility in me is aching for a way for things to be easy. Even if somewhere deeper, I know that easy things are very rarely the things that set people free. And for every protest I plan to attend, there's a hundred more I need to plan or attend. Simultaneously, as a queer person of color, there's a fire raging for people like me to just be free. On the wrong days, news about yet another black trans woman dying or a mass shooting targeting uh, toward immigrants shoves me right to the floor. And I've tasted the bitter resentment that comes up from watching people step over my pain to continue comfortable lives. Like the survivors of purity culture, we are left with the question, how can we find a better way? So this next section is titled, What If It Was Okay to Rest? In the very beginning of the Bible, there's a poem about how God created everything. And it's a great meditation to help people who are too focused on the next step and miss the big picture. It goes a little something like this. This is my summary. God looked at the mighty expanse of chaos and she opened her mouth and spoke powerful words, words that unfurled the black canvas of space and lit the yellow orbs of the stars and the sun. Her commands assembled land and poured river. They painted green and amber across the landscapes, trailing broad leaves and grasses and trees. The sweat of God's brow filled oceans and all of the life of the sea started. And she sloshed through the waves toward the land and opened her mouth wide and sang until all the animals shimmered up from the surface everything from powerful leopards to heavy bison. She spoke humans into existence and gave us hands to steward all of the work. She looked at all of it, satisfied, and decided that she had enough. It was time for rest. And so in the beginning, God worked. God pressed hard. God knows how to rise and grind. God knows how to work the night shift and find a way to make it to the opening shift, anyone? She knows how to throw on work clothes and put on makeup on the public bus. She knows how to pack lunch and dinner because she won't be home before then. She knows how to tuck the kids in and stay up at the kitchen table to get the job done. But then she rested. She discovered a point where even in her infinite expansiveness, even with all of creation bowing to her every word, even as the author of time itself, she took a break. And she didn't apologize for it. God didn't ignore her fatigue to the point of busting herself. God didn't catastrophize the situation, yelling to her coworkers, if I work one more day, I'm gonna break. She didn't have to justify it with a cute social media post that shows off how balanced she was. She rested because she wanted to rest, plain and simple. And then she blessed that day and made it holy, Genesis 2, 3, holy. 
is what she called it. In fact, the first time that that kadash, which means holy or consecrated, shows up in the Bible, it is to describe God resting. The day of rest, the day of rest received an honor that the day that life was invented didn't get. We just call that day Wednesday. <laughs> but the day of rest gets its own special name. The day of rest is Sabbath. And really from that point on, Sabbath has always been a sacred ritual in the Judeo-Christian world. When the community was putting down their key commitments, Sabbath was literally set in stone when it became one of the first Ten Commandments. It was deemed important uh, as the rule forbidding people to murder each other. <laughs> and, the, and just to be clear, this is, was never an individualistic thing. God reminded people that Sabbath was for every human and animal and the land in Deuteronomy. Later, when leaders would forget to rest, God raised up prophets to remind them, Isaiah and Ezekiel. When people started using Sabbath regulations in ways that oppressed people, Jesus set them straight. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament urged Christians to continue the practice of Sabbath. Therefore, since the promise that we can enter into the rest is still open, let's be careful so that none of you will appear to miss it. A lot changed over the thousands of years under the Bible. Uh, but what didn't change was the human need to rest, even if we apparently kept forgetting to do it. Like a parent desperately reading through the third nighttime book at bedtime, God seriously just wants us to close our eyes and try to rest. <laughs> and this last section is called, Rest Does Not Equal Numbness. Mm. Our society is so... <laughs> our society is so Sabbath illiterate that almost any activity can pass as rest, which can make actually resting pretty difficult. A restful day may include every, anything from going outside to internet binging, from sleeping all day to running around with the kids, from self-medicating to checking email from a slightly more comfortable place than the office. But how do we find out what actually restores us? You know, in the empire mindset, work is our primary commitment, and the only purpose of rest is to get back to work. As one business maxim says, the only point of rest is to sharpen your axe so that you can be more efficient with the daily work of chopping down trees. As one rabbi told me though, however, this is not what life in God looks like. In a Sabbath paradigm, resting in God is the center of your life and the point of work is only to be able to return to rest. All of my socialization as an adult came with the understanding of work at the center Every standardized test, every college admission essay, every selection of major and career counseling came under the shadow of the question, what do you want to do with your life? The Sabbath never asks us what we want to do with our lives. It doesn't matter if your job is super important or you're unemployed or you're about to get a promotion. The work is simply not the main focus. The Sabbath's one and only concern is, how is God calling you to rest today? Given your circumstances, whatever they may be, how can you open yourself up to the most generous embrace of a God who wants to restore you? For the people who aren't used to it, a day of rest seems like an incredible amount of time to fill. My friend in the corporate world hardly know what to do with three minutes if someone is late to a meeting. A single mom in my life sees an empty afternoon like it were a bottomless void. And plenty of people, plenty, use busyness as a weapon against contemplation so that they don't have to slow down and deal with some of the stuff under the surface. Yikes. However, Sabbath teaches us that we can delight in God, which is an antidote to purity culture. 
It is an act of trust. For those of you who pursue justice, Sabbath requires us to trust that if we rest, the Holy Spirit will continue to hold the front line even when we're not there. It's saying to God, my work is not done and will never be done, but I trust that resting in you is more important than anything I can come up with for the next 24 hours. You are God, I am not God, and that means creation revolves around you and not me. We intentionally take control out of our hands and put it in God's, and that is a deeply unsettling thing indeed. And it really couldn't be scarier when the world feels out of control. Ultimately, Sabbath teaches us that we can delight in God even when times are tough. This is perhaps the greatest secret of staying awake, which is the title of the book. Discover, discovering the difference between resting in God and its counterfeit knockoffs, escapism and narcotization. The gentle hand of Sabbath teaches us that we can receive without entitlement, rest without justification, enjoy without overconsuming, and slow down without drifting away. It's possible to feel okay when things aren't okay. We remember this not just in words, but in pleasurable activities, in sleeping and playing. We teach our bodies that even though the world sometimes feel like a battlefield, we are not our armor. We can be soft, we can be slow, and we can remember what matters.